The same old discussions and problems remain, so what's to be done? Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark left into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. And James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to a rather warm episode 21 of F1M Review, the episode, the hour and part two, where we look back at round 11 of this season, the Austrian Grand Prix, and forwards to the French Grand Prix coming up this weekend. Hello, I'm Tom Claiborne, and as ever, I'm joined by Tristan Fangort and Angus Gallagher. A reminder, you can follow myself and Tristan individually on Twitter, as well as F1M Review, we have our own account there as well. And unfortunately, we start this episode on a more negative and pleasant topic, as many of you may have seen and heard. Aidan Liu, who previously worked as a laminator at Aston Martin until very recently, indeed he helped to build Sebastian Vettel's cars, been telling Sky Sports and indeed the world that he was repeatedly subjected to racist and homophobic abuse when at the team and was referred to by racial slurs and not his name by other members of the team. Now, Aston Martin say that Aiden's contract was terminated due to poor performance and poor timekeeping and was unconnected to the discrimination he experienced. And going on to say more about this, they say, AMR and its suppliers operate a zero-tolerance policy with regards to racism, homophobia and all types of discrimination. In this case, the um, complaint was rightly believed and his complaints were immediately acted upon and appropriate sanctions were imposed in line with our zero-tolerance policy Regarding this, we are in ongoing discussions with him regarding this. Formula One are yet to comment on this. They have been approached on this. And as of the time of recording that being Monday evening, there's been nothing from them. So here we are again, aren't we? Despite the public campaigns, the promises, the slogans, we race as one and racism, the gestures and the like. It seems that at the very least in some pockets of Formula One or hopefully not the entirety of the sport, there seems to be... Still a problem with racism. Our thoughts on this? Well, the, the only thought that I have is consistent with my previous lines on this, which is it needs to absolutely be stamped out. And this isn't just a criticism of Aston Martin. This is deeper than that. It's rooted within the fan base and within the teams themselves and goes beyond just what we're seeing in the UK, but actually is reflective of the fact that F1 has a problem with the kind of people it deals with. For example, I don't know if you saw today, that Aston Martin raised £650 million from Saudi Arabia as it takes a stake in the company. And they, they asked um, Papa Stroll, as we like to call him, um, or uh, Lawrence Stroll, who basically owns Aston Martin, these the conglomerate owns it, whether or not he was comfortable with the Saudi Arabia uh, getting involved, given their human rights record. And he said, yes, I'm very comfortable. Bear in mind that 
they actually invest in other companies such as McLaren. And so when we're talking about the, the inbuilt racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, challenge to human rights, which is all involved in the sport, the, the only thing I, I can think of is that we need to get rid of it. And that means terminating partnerships with people like Aramco, making sure that fans that are racist are gone. Now, I will say that Aston Martin, it's important to point this out, that Aston Martin did let go of those employees, those employees who, mm. who were yep. um, racist have been let go so that's that's good but the fact is they felt like they were comfortable enough to behave like that and that's worrying because it means that they were happy to be heard to be on cctv this isn't stuff they're saying quietly you know in a corner where no one can hear them but this is something they can say in a really public forum and they don't really care who overhears which is incredibly embarrassing for Aston Martin and probably you know reflective of the kind of culture that they've been they've been building there and it's a real shame but as i say this is this goes beyond just the you know the surface level homophobia racism everything that we see because it gets reported because someone speaks out the reality is we need to get rid of the ties to people who have you know uh, who challenge the the values that we hold dear there's no point saying things like we race as one if you're not going to actually support that with any real actions because there can be positive actions that can that can come from teams at the end of the day we have to for example get women into the sport so when alpine uh, have launched their program to get a female racer into formula one that's really good those are actions but the fact is f1 has a massive problem with actually getting some actions behind its words so we do have a culture where we think it's acceptable apparently to be racist to to be, be homophobic to to you know just at the last grand prix there was the those people that felt it was acceptable to belittle and and well sexually abuse those women and we as fans have to stand up against that. If you see it, you have to call it out. And Formula One, well, they need to actually get off their asses and do something about it as well. Yeah, completely echo those words, Tristan, honestly. It's just... It's it's one of those where... The thing with the, with the news, it's very easy to... I always try to look at these news stories from the other point of view in that whilst there's obviously... There's a, there's been an instance of racism and homophobia at this Formula One team, and you immediately have to think, well, not everybody is like that, you know? Not everybody is homophobic and racist. You just have these idiotic, brainless minorities who display this just this disgusting behaviour, and it's the kind of behaviour, again, where you think, well, would this happen if they weren't uh, in a group of people, if they're not in front of their mates? Or is this just something which is just intrinsic within them that they are brought up with and that they are just comfortable saying out loud, which I just, I cannot, like, it just, I, I don't understand what would bring you to the point of thinking that would be acceptable, but some of us are, some people are still learning, it seems, and they're going to be learning the hard way. And it's good to see that Aston Martin have actioned this by terminating their contracts, making sure those people don't work for the team. Um Still, I raised this point in our group chat like a few days ago when the story came out about the the generic statement that Aston Martin trotted out saying we, in all regards, do not tolerate any of this behaviour 
Um, now, of course, I'm sure that's genuine and they mean that, but it just seems like such a generic point of view, like PR stuff that they put out there to after an instance happened. Just a, basically a common strategy, it seems, of organizations in this modern world is to see something horrendous happen in their organization, deal with it, and then go, we stand for the complete opposite. Promise, promise. Um, which I'm sure Aston Martin does, but events like this just makes it seem like they're being a bit more lackadaisical on the issue and not clamping down properly. Um, I must also say it's it's positive. It's not it's not positive at all that uh, poor Aiden has had to go through this. I would say it is very positive that he has felt comfortable enough or has come and spoken out about it. Mm-hmm. It's really important that these things are put in the public eye and that we hear about them so that we're aware of them. And if we're aware they're, they're if you're aware things are going on, you're in a much better position to tackle them. So I give him huge credit for coming out and talking about his experience, one, an experience which must have been horrible to go through. So that is really, that's, that's really, really positive. Also the interesting, the, um, the interesting contradict, the, not contradiction, the interesting, um, what's the word, juxtaposition between, um, to comment on the other topic you raised of Aston Martin raking in millions and millions of pounds from a, largely questionable regime um whilst alpine also launches their uh their um initiative to get more women into the sport that is chalk and cheese absolute chalk and cheese in terms of actions you can take to try and um further the development and increase the interest of marginalized not marginalized groups but groups which are in terms of formula one marginalized in terms of who works there so alpine doing absolutely the right thing it's incredible how they're reaching out and trying to get more women into the sport uh, in what is a still a, a male dominated f1 paddock whilst aston martin on the other side look at saudi arabia and go you know what i want a slice of that pie i don't mind the 650 million pounds that's coming in despite the morally questionable um the morally questionable things that come out of them sebastian vettel must be absolutely quaking in his boots if i was him i would not have a chance or have consider any chance of m- myself renewing a contract to his team for the for the future because that is is Aston Martin's more and more looking like the kind of team through partly through their own creation sometimes through their, no fault of their own a team which you don't want to be around and we can we'll come to on track matters later on but in terms of what's happened off track this story that's been raised by by young Aiden is one which shows that yes Aston Martin in particular, perhaps Formula One as a whole still has a lot to learn when it comes to its attitudes towards accepting and embracing all groups within our sport. Yeah, I definitely agree. There is work to be done. And unfortunately, cases like this show that in many cases, despite the nice slogans, we've hardly scratched the surface of what is a mentality problem and a cultural problem within Formula One. I don't think we should you know, kid ourselves in thinking that we could one day wake up where we don't have questionable regimes and questionable companies from questionable regimes involved in the sport. But we can at least control what we can. I think the personnel within Formula One, many of them, unfortunately, still do see the sport as theirs. And they don't see the sport as being the property of others, shall we say. And I'm not too sure where that necessarily comes from. Maybe that comes from the fact that 
Formula One has in the past and still does, you know, attract and, and, and foster those who have lots of money versus talent and is not necessarily the most uh, meritocratic uh, system going on. But that needs to get weeded out, really. And it's now upon all teams and the FIA and Formula One and drivers stomping their feet to say, well, this isn't good enough because if we're not careful, there'll be the classic sort of rise of, ah, we've got to go and do something. We've got to be seen as doing something. Let's do stuff that sort of teeter around the edge of the issue but not go up the core but then the core still remains everyone goes well you know we've made lots of noises about um, homophobia and racism and going against people based on who they are not based on what they can actually do for the sport and then they go okay well we've solved the issue type thing and then it goes away but I'm yet to see serious coordinated tangible action from Formula One about tackling this issue it seems to be as we say based very much on what they're seen to be doing rather than what they're actually doing in many cases so they need to show that they care and not just be of the opinion that well we care enough if other people care but we don't really care because as Aiden said in many times to Sky Sports and others you know we're all told that it's a level playing field get involved with the sport you know if you love something go after it that type of thing but if that's not the case and if Formula One still has barriers up against certain people it doesn't like and wants to conserve itself or the old system of it then that's really to the sport's detriment because we've seen, haven't we, not only with series like Drive to Survive and others, when you open the gates in many cases to a wider section of society and the community and introduce them to something, they will probably like it and that will probably be to the betterment of it as long as it's controlled and regulated in terms of safety as we alluded to uh, last episode. But that's the thing really, you've got to, you've got to think... Do Formula One and do large proponents of it want the the goods and the resources that comes from better, you know, more people getting involved in it, viewing it, being a part of it, but aren't willing really to change some of the nastier sides of it? And you know, there's work to be done, and time will tell whether they're serious about changing the darker sides of it. But we'll see. We'll see. It's so difficult because Formula One needs money, and the the sport is an incredibly expensive one just logistics are on another level when it's when it comes to moving the paddocks around the around the globe in frankly a very inefficient manner if you actually look at the calendar Mm. the cars are worth hundreds of millions of of pounds or or dollars whatever respective currency you would like and and that's not just necessarily the manufacturing but also the r&d and the designing and then on top of that you've got to pay for everything else that goes along with it like the wind tunnel time you've got to rent tracks you've got to do so much and before you know it you got you've got to raise well billions to get this thing going that's why aston martin needs the the cash injection from from Saudi Arabia and, and not just for their their Formula One car but for their road cars as well because it's it's all interlinked. You know, Ferrari needs hundreds of millions to get going, and that's the problem because Formula One is a a a money pit. Then it attracts, unfortunately, the wealthiest in in the world, which unfortunately comes from exploitation. And we've got to move away from signing up the just the highest bidder. And yes, it's going to be a slow process. I don't think any one of us can say, you know, absolutely, we're going to be able to get rid of, you know, Ramco, Shell or or BP or whoever, Exco, you know, uh, immediately. But we've got to start not only transitioning the, 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 
the sport away from excess and that's why the budget cap and stuff has come in but we've also got to start transitioning the company the, the kind of companies that formula one deals with as well to ones that are more reputable and the teams have to take responsibility for that because if the sport doesn't fit with the the new world and at the moment i don't think it does then we're gonna have a a, a major problem because something will have to give and you know it's good to hear that things like the uh the calendar is going to be more efficient so that the all of europe's dealt with in one go north america's dealt with one go for example asia is all dealt with in one go so that you'd have to keep shipping things you know around but those are really big things but f1 could deal with the very very small things immediately such as stopping the racism stopping the the acceptable culture of homophobia or you know the the fact that fans feel comfortable sexually assaulting women those are things that you can stop now you might not be able to completely separate aramco and the oil companies from formula one but they can take action that means something to so many people immediately not just as you say angus publishing generic pre-written statements you know that sort of stuff that useless stuff they can actually make a difference to people's you know perception of the sport and the fan culture by having zero tolerance policies by you know preventing excess drinking for example and gang and and herd nature within in the, the within the crowds and i think if they started with the little things then we could actually transition the sport quickly to a, to a point where we're quite proud of the things that f1 is doing i'm sick and tired of having to yet again discuss the fact that you know that the the fans or a team or or f1 themselves embarrassing us yet again it would be nice one day to to say oh you know good f1's banned 60 fans that were you know inappropriate at a, a site and made sure that they're never getting back into the paddock again so that people will feel safer you know those are the stories we want to report on and and yet again it seems that f1 is embarrassing itself by accepting a culture that is just a juxtaposition to the to the kind of morals and and things that we you know f1 in review and i think the majority of f1 fans you know hold dear and as we say, going on to Aston Martin on track, they've only scored points seven times out of the 11 races we've had in terms of this Formula 1 season. We heard at the start from their team principal they were looking to be title contenders. There's someone like Sebastian Vettel there who would bring expertise, knowledge and experience. But currently they're ninth in the constructors. They're only 15 points ahead of Williams. They're nine points behind AlphaTauri, which, let's be fair, have been stuttering and spluttering themselves. And they're nearly half the points that Haas have, where they're 35 for Haas and 18 for Aston Martin. It's not been a great start for Aston Martin, although we are sort of nearly halfway there. There is time for them to repair what's been a poor start. But what do we make of their performances so far? Rubbish. They're dreadful. Their um, their performances have really left Aston Martin fans lacking, you could say. And it's not even you made you made the point about t- um, them talking about title contenders um, or them being title contenders, Tom. It's an interesting one because I think even the most optimistic Aston Martin fan wouldn't have expected them to be title contenders this year, even with a rule change. I think that statement they put out there is more like a a four or five year plan, so to speak. You know, they've come back, they've re-entered the sport. 
um, after a very long time out, as in when they used to be an engine manufacturer compared to now having a team. And they're, they're slowly investing, they're bringing talent on board, you know, bringing Martin Whitmarsh on board in a uh, in a team role, on a high-up high team role there, as seen as a sign of them building their, their stocks, so to speak, investing in a, new, in a new factory as well, bringing in money, rightly or wrongly, through the sponsorship they've acquired. Um, it was seen as like a building process, you know, building, building towards something, having a goal, you know, to be world champions in four or five years. But this year, I think we at least expected them, after a year last year where they came, what, seventh? Yeah, seventh in the Constructors' Championship, I think. Um, sort of in that midfield pack. You thought, you know what, they ought to make a step forward this year. Almost be like where McLaren and Alpine are right now. You know, sort of on their day as good, as close to Mercedes or, or on Mercedes's pace, you know. But not as far down as they are at the moment. They're constantly, regularly getting knocked out both cars in Q1, like last two, three races in a row. We're getting used to the deja vu of um, Sebastian Vettel's engineer tell him, Seb, mate, you're out in Q1. And he goes, you're joking. You're kidding me every single time. So that's not what he wants to hear. It's not what Aston Martin fans want to hear. But it's the truth at the moment. They just have, they have a, a mixture of a Mercedes engine, which is just not as good as the other ones on the grid at the moment. That's just a fact. They have a car design which last year their car design was less beneficial because it was the it was the high rake versus low rake system. So Aston Martin and Mercedes, two teams who went for a low rake design, which turned out to be not beneficial in terms of the slightly adjusted regulations last year. This year they just seem to have gone down the wrong route in terms of the brand new regulations with the completely redesigned cars. And it's just all not going very well. It's just not much to be positive about. You've got a four-time world champion who is openly questioning his place in the sport and having a public meltdown about whether Formula 1 is destroying the environment. The fact that he's gained more notoriety this year for going on question time in the UK rather than any of his Formula 1 performances speaks volumes, in my opinion. I can't think of an occasion... And looking at the results here, I can't think of an equation where you thought, oh, that's a good weekend for Aston Martin. That was a good weekend. I can't think of one. Vettel came sixth in Baku, which is their only top seven finish so far this year for either driver. Now, that was a very good weekend for sure, and he is a Baku specialist. Um, but even that weekend, I don't recall it being like, oh, you know what, Aston Martin are quick this weekend. He probably had a, he had a very good weekend for sure, as shown by that final result. But... It wasn't a case of, oh, Aston Martin are back. They've like got their pace advanced again. It just seems like a f- flash in the pan, really, that weekend. Because they've just been not threatening at all the midfield. Not threatening Q2. Or, or sorry, not threatening Q3 or sometimes Q2. It just looks very bleak for them. And, of course, there's the old argument of they've reached such a low point that the only way is up. But they could find themselves in a situation where, you know their four-time world champion, their star driver, has enough. He goes off. He's been linked with McLaren in recent weeks. And he may see either a better future there or outside the sport altogether. And then you're left with a vacant seat and then the son of the team boss who is underperforming and also looks like he'll never be shifted because he's he's the son of the team boss. So it's not really an ideal set of scenarios that they currently find themselves in. Um, and... That continued in Austria. Poor performance. Vettel got punted out a couple of times. There's not, not much more to say, really. They're just in the doldrums, really. 
They are, and it's a shame because I I feel like Aston Martin, and I guess the last generation of the Racing Point car when it was not quite as good either, sort of squandered the kind of team that they bought because as a because before Lawrence Stroll, as we call him Papa Stroll, um, his son. Lance Stroll is the driver. Um, they've got kind of similar, similar names, so it's okay if you get them confused. Before Lawrence Stroll took over the team, it was it was Force India. And Force India, well, it kind of punched above its weight, let's say, in the hybrid era. It, it, we, would, we would see pretty good results for a team that had a small budget. It was, I, I guess it was like the real underdog of Formula One. And, and then their funding went and so they had to get a new a new funder and that came from in a in a you know in a lovely form of of Lawrence Stroll and he took over the team and it kind of continued to punch above its weight a bit they you know they had good t- good drivers um in Sergio Perez and and Ocon even though they tried to try to kill each other a few times by ramming <laughs> each other off the track but hmm. they kind of had a a fighting spirit and then I would say it kind of went downhill when Lawrence Stroll decided to get Lance Stroll a seat. And we had that competition between Sergio Perez and Esteban Ocon about which one was going to keep their seat. And in the end, Ocon got given the boot. And as soon as he did that, as soon as Lawrence Stroll did that, I feel like he put the team on a very specific trajectory, which unfortunately meant that they started to slip. And instead of, I say, nurturing this team that was was punching above its weight, they kind of just lost all the momentum behind it. And now it's basically turned into Team Lance Stroll tried to get him around the track as quickly as possible. And oh, yes, there's his mentor in the the form of Sebastian Vettel. And Sebastian Vettel, after the last race, said that he was going to time to consider his future and weigh up whether or not he wants to spend time with his family. And sentiments like that are indicative of a driver that doesn't want to be in the sport anymore. And that's reflective, I think, in how he's doing within the within the championship. I mean, just look at both the drivers. He's cut like in the last race, Lance Stroll finished in 13th and Sebastian Vettel in 17th. That's stone dead last. And that sort of those sort of results have just been very, very consistent, even at their home race. At the British Grand Prix, Lance Stroll was in 11th. And Sebastian Vettel managed to get up into the points into 9th place. But this isn't a team that has great momentum. I feel like they've got a a pretty terrible car because they keep changing it. Don't don't forget that this Mm. is their their next spec car. They started off with a car that looked kind of different to everyone else's. And then they decided to just basically copy the Red Bull car. Or, you know, they said they didn't, but perhaps take inspiration from and but they, they ended up then producing another car completely that looks a bit more like red bull and it's just not performing the only thing that's performing is currently the strategy team within the aston martin racing team because they know that the car looks after the tires and so their strategy basically has been run them long run both drivers long and then hope there's a safety car or something happens so that basically they can overcut everyone else because they've got a time deficit. And that's not a strategy of a winning team. That's a strategy 
of a team that is is just hoping for the best in the worst possible way. So I feel like for Aston Martin, they need to they need to have picked a car. I I can't think of any team that's just completely re-engineered a, a car, you know, thirds away through a season and thought, yep, that's the way we're going to win. It's all about creating a good package at the beginning and building upon that. And you know, yes, you can add in new things. Like let's not forget that. Um, things like the double diffuser for many teams way back when um, it was it was Button who won the championship the double diffuser was so disruptive that other teams engineered it into their cars but none of them decided to completely re-engineer their cars Aston Martin is just doing some weird things at the moment and to be honest I'm not surprised it's not paying off but the strategy team I think is the only reason why the, the, the team has any points yeah, I'd have to agree. And I remember the start of the season when we had the sponsor, BWT, leaving, going to Alpine. You had the team principal that was of Aston Martin slash Racing Points. Uh, on myself now going to Alpine as well. You know, There were warning signs there. There was you know, clear issues that things weren't well. And you thought, well, OK, there's reasons why people move on. BWT aren't the be-all and end-all. No pun intended there. It's all good. You know, They've got uh, Aramco there as a sponsor. There's money behind them. They've got somebody in Mike Crack who's obviously had great experience when it comes to motorsport. So there's in good hands there. They've got Sebastian Vettel with a lot of experience. You know, It's all going to be OK, but... It just hasn't been, has it? And I think they've lost their sort of punchiness, their edge that Racing Point and formerly Force India had, as we've been talking about there. And now, I, in many ways, I have more faith in someone like Alex Albon to just spring something out there and to get some points. And looking at it from a purely maths perspective, that's completely false. He's only got points twice compared to uh, the Aston Martin team that have got points so many times. A double points finish as well as we look all the way back to uh, Imola, for example, uh, this season. But so far, aside from a few occasions where they've done you know, reasonably well, it just doesn't look good, does it? I mean, as well, you see Sebastian Vettel with somebody who has a contract running out the at the end of the season. And you think, well, where do they go from here? They seem to be very directionless. And as you say, that stems from prioritising Lance Stroll over the team. And rewind a few seasons when you had him fighting for a win, if you can believe it or not, at Turkey getting consistent points with a racing point car. You thought, well, maybe we were wrong about him. Maybe we were harsh and thought, well, okay, he's gone into the sport owing to money, not owing to talent. But the more we see of him, the clearer it is that Lance Stroll just isn't the man to do the job and to get Aston Martin up the grid and be the title contenders they say they want to be in many years' time. So it begs the question, where does that cut-off point come? Where does the tension get released between the ambitions of someone like Mike Crack, who wants to go and get them up to be contenders, so he says, I believe him. And then Lawrence Stroll saying, well, I want that as well, but that's got to be with my son in the car. Yeah. The two aren't going to be compatible, are they? So it begs the question, you know, what happens there? And someone like Sebastian Vettel as well. You hear comments of him saying, I'm not happy, I want to be racing in cars that can win races. A clear shot, really, of where Aston are at the moment. And I think, really, the the problem is that if you have someone like... Sebastian Vettel leaving. If you have, you know, the demotion of Hulkenberg, you have someone like Ocon being turfed out because he's not the man for the job. Someone like Perez turfed out because he's not the man for the job. That sends out the wrong signals to any other driver that wants to come potentially to Aston Martin or sees a vacancy there in a few years' time because they think, well, I could get a seat there. It could be a nice ride for one, two, maybe three years. But then when I'm surplus to requirements, when Lance or Lawrence Stroll doesn't fancy me anymore. 
I'm out, I've got to start all over again. And you think to yourself, how sustainable is that for Aston Martin, who want to be title contenders? Not really, is it? Because then you become the meme team of, oh, I won't go there because uh, give it two seasons, you'll be out, pal, whoever you are. And it's not great you know, foundations or or anything really to build success on. So they really are the masters in many cases of their own downfall because yes, Lance Stroll is bringing so yes, Lawrence Stroll is bringing so much money into the team, obviously keeping them afloat after they got into financial difficulties with a previous owner, but. There doesn't seem to be a plan or a realistic plan moving forwards about what Aston Martin want to be. And we've seen in the lower midfield teams like Haas, for example, you know, Alpha Tauri and uh, other aspects as well. They all seem to have plans about where they want to go. Haas, for example, gambled with two younger drivers, got a lot of money in, accepted their losses for last season, thought, you know, this season is going to be the one. That's paying off in some aspects. Alpha Tauri, let's go for a name change, get some more sponsorship in depict ourselves at the very least as being more a sister team than a feeder team to uh, Red Bull. Obviously, there's question marks about how true that is. But, you know, once again, a plan. Alfa Romeo, bring Bottas in. Get rid of Giovinazzi and um, Raikkonen. A plan, a plan that's working. And obviously, not everyone can have a plan that works. That's how Formula One in life is to an extent. Mm. But at least you can see the logic of it. And you can see the the, the sort of general trage- trajectory of it and the direction and, you know, clear pieces to the puzzle what i'm seeing now with aston martin is we want to be title contenders let's put some money into uh, various different factories and into the development of this that and the other but nothing seems to be ringing true so i think really if aston martin wants to get serious with themselves they've got to get you know back to the drawing board come summer break come in the season and go well this whatever this is isn't working it's time to do something different I wonder, Aston Martin fans out there, and and you know, I know there are some because I see them in the wild. Now, when you look at your team, and I suppose it's similar as a, as a McLaren fan, I see that and I feel sad. You know, when you when you see the team, I, how do you how do you feel about L- Lance Stroll being the de facto number one driver? Now, I'd I'd like to know whether or not you feel that they should cut their losses get rid of Lance and that might jeopardise the funding or whether or not you feel that they should keep going with the hope that they'll get a second driver once Vettel is gone they'll be able to pick up the reins and get get performance because it, it must be difficult watching a team that has so much potential and so much money backing it including this new 650 million pounds from uh, Saudi Arabia state investment group you know it must be really difficult seeing no no results come through because something as you say tom has definitely got to change there so it just feels a bit like you know a bit like mclaren at the moment as well kind of kind of got no direction nothing really coming out of all the investment all the all the hype that that we hear from them sprint yeah sprint we're sprinting through these topics Uh, he he he. Hey. Oh, hang on. <laughs> oh dear. Right, okay. So yes, we had our second sprint race of the season on Saturday in Austria just gone. And this is the second of three that we'll have. The last one will be in Brazil. And I think really looking at the entirety of the sprint race, I think Alpine 
trying to get Alonso to start with tyre blankets on. Joe failing to get to the grid itself are probably the main highlights of the sprint. And for the Eagle Eye viewer out there, you'll know that's before the sprint even began. It saw Max Verstappen qualifying P1 and hold that all the way to the start for Sunday. But aside from Sergio Perez getting all the way from P13 to P5, it didn't really shake up the grid too much from P1 to 4 or indeed from 5 to 10 and beyond. And it saw Ferrari scrapping uh, quite ferociously at the start of this sprint for P2 and 3 very much to their own detriment. So older listeners will know our thoughts on the sprints. With two sprints down, have those views changed? Have they solidified? Where are we in our complicated relationship with the sprint? Well, Tom, as you say, older listeners and, and I would say listeners who've heard our podcast um, for, a, for a couple of years now will know that Angus is very much anti-sprint. I seem to be slightly more kind to the the format, but Tom, you you've always remained a little bit more on the fence. So you know, now that the sprint is a bit more mature, we're into the second season of of experiencing it. I ask you, what what as a as a sort of a, a, you know a, an on the fence spectator mm. of the sprint, do you think it's adding anything to the sport? Do you think it needs adjustment? How would how would you fix it if you think it did? Yeah, interesting. I think I've always been down, or I've tried to be down at least, as a sprint sceptic. I.e. give it time, but if it doesn't work out, it's got to go. And I think a lot of the same problems still remain when it comes to the sprint. First of all, the points tally just aren't enough to go and warrant teams to really go all in, put, you know, two-footer challenges in if you're going to go for a football analogy um, in, in terms of the sprint because the cost of damaging one's car ahead of Saturday is just too great to go for a lunging move here or a daring move on the outside. So that's got to change. It still isn't a sprint. You know, what was it, 15 laps or so is not a sprint. You know, 20 laps isn't a sprint. A sprint, in my view, is literally five laps at the very at the very most or seven maybe but it's got to at least be below double figures for it to be a sprint because otherwise it's just a a semi-marathon or a relay in my view so i would give the sprint one more chance i would give the sprint at the very push one more season but i wouldn't give it more than three races really or i wouldn't go far beyond that because i've always been a fan of the old qualifying system I think it's allowed teams that shouldn't ordinarily be on the third or second, fourth row of the grid uh, to get there really by getting strategy right, by going out early, by putting different tyres on in variable conditions. And my issue with the sprint is you have that in final practice or qualifying, whatever, but then it just waters it down and eventually you get the best teams going out on top. And of course... You know, talent must prevail in many aspects. I totally get that argument. But one of the reasons we love Formula 1 is because it throws up some of the weird and wonderful aspects. You know, Stroll starting P1, for example, in Turkey way back when. No one would have thought about that. That that would have been watered down. That would have been non-existent by the sprint because the race pace of the other cars around what was then a racing point would have destroyed it. And the danger is with the sprint, you put too much emphasis on race pace versus qualifying pace. And of course... That must almost dominate, that must always dominate in one aspect, but there's always got to be the day where the, the teams that qualify well get their day in the sun. Ferrari, I remember last season, had excellent qualifying pace, got onto the front row of the grid many occasions, but race pace didn't prevail. But that's fine because there was a race for the race to get rid of that and for the race pace to qualify or to supersede the qualifying pace, should I say. So I'm skeptical about the sprint, I remain such. 
if someone had to go and say to me, right, Sprint's got to stay forever or go forever, I would err on the side of going. But I think it can be great or it can at least be better. But I don't see it being like that because I don't see F1 and the powers that be making it such. Yeah, my opinion hasn't changed. It's I don't see the point of it. <laughs> Genuinely, it's just yeah. I I just I can't find any reason to get on board with it. It's an extra gimmick, which is just to try and increase the attention of our attentionless generation that we are a part of. Um, like Tom said, it's not a sprint. It's more like one if they if they just call it the F one light jog. You know that might actually <laughs> describe it more aptly. A third, a third of a race distance is not a sprint. It is literally like a a gentle stroll. Um, but then they, if they call race. it, it that's the thing. race. Yeah, you can't call it a race. You can't call it a gentle stroll. But then you get accused of nepotism because you know Lance stroll. <laughs> um, so yeah. It's, yeah, you can't really do anything with it. The one gripe I have with the sprint, and it reared its head again with this one, is it gives any driver who's had a poor qualifying a chance to make amends before the race even starts and it takes away the jeopardy of qualifying being really on the limit really having to be that time where you deliver your ultimate lap the example being Sergio Perez um, came well in the end he came 13th in qualifying he didn't come 13th he got demoted to 13th because his best times got deleted because of track limits violations but at the same time he starts 13th and I'm sorry but whatever you may say in my opinion, the race is more interesting if you've got Sergio Perez fighting through from the 13th place, and it means that he has to try and fight tooth and nail to get a good result. In the end, it didn't really matter as much because, you know, he got punted off by George Russell, or there was a collision between them, and his race was ruined anyway. But the race is more interesting if he has to come through from 13th and try and rescue a result. But sprint means that he can go, you know what, I'm just going to drive past all these fast cars, these Alfa Romeos, these Hasses, these Alpines, they mean nothing to me, and I'm going to get my starting position of fifth back. It just gives them like almost like a leg up, like a um, like a way to sort of get back in the action. And yes, I get it can provide the opposite. It can provide a a sense of jeopardy. For example, Fernando Alonso would have started comfortably in the top ten, but because his car decided it didn't fancy starting that day, and it just decided to have problems with the electrics, he ended up starting from the pit lane instead. Now I get there's that sense of jeopardy, but for me, it just doesn't add anything. It just—it's just an extra thing for this um, attention-seeking or attention-needing generation, younger generation, to have something on a Saturday. There's nothing wrong with having practice on a Friday, you know. It's not the most exciting, I'll admit. And they could have less practice sessions, but it happens, you know. Practice happens. You need to, strangely, you need to practice for these things, you know, these um, important things in life, such as a Grand Prix weekend, qualifying on a Saturday, race on a Sunday works well there's a reason why it's called a grand prix because it's i'm loosely translating it here but it's a big old race it's a big old race and it means that if you win it means if you win if you, if you win one of them it's a big achievement you're telling me esteban ocon wasn't absolutely ecstatic when he won his first grand prix last year he was over the moon because he realized his ambition to win a grand prix i'm sorry you're not getting the same buzz if you win a sprint stefano domenicali and those in the F1 hierarchy have said that feedback from fans on Sprint is hugely positive. Where? Show me this feedback. Tell me, where? where is this feedback coming from? The only thing you could argue would be provides more action on a Friday. You know, qualifying late on a Friday would appeal to some people coming in after work. But you know what appeals to me? Qualifying on a weekend because I'm not busy. 
you know, stuff like that. But at the same time, I still think they're going to persist because if you bring something in and you want to give it a chance, you persist, right? You don't give up at the sign of uh, a sign of adversity. So I think that's what F1's going to do, to be honest. And it wouldn't. And there's plans supposedly to expand the number of sprint events to six next year, which would be a quarter of the calendar. I don't like that at all. I'm opposed to it, but you know it's going to happen anyway. So I'm just, I'm just going to have to accept it and swallow it, aren't I? Even if uh, uh, I and and others oppose this concept, um, and you may you may be able to tell right now, I'm not going to be very easily persuaded the other way. Um, I'm not yeah. convinced it adds much at all to the F1 weekend. It gives you a few points, you know, a few little little uh, little treats, a few extra points, but yeah, not for me. Still, not for me. That's interesting, and I'm, it's a shame that we're so negative against it because it has a, a lot of potential, and I'm far less conservative when it comes to F1 change, and I think you are, Angus. And, um, and I know that there is a real split within the community, and I'd love to hear your thoughts at home, um, listeners, about whether or not you are opposed to sprints or not. And also, when you started watching F1, that would be a really interesting thing to track, mm. whether or not long-term uh, viewers of Formula 1 are more resistive to the change. But the fact is, sprint races have the opportunity to bring excitement and difference to a weekend of racing. And we know this because of Formula 2. If you don't know, there's a sprint race and a feature race. And in Formula 2, they reverse the front of the grid to make it more interesting. And you might say, well, how does that solve the problem? And the reason it might solve the problem in sprints and make it more interesting is because it's one thing to catch a car. It's a very different one to overtake. Um, And people like Fernando Alonso or, in Austria, Mick Schumacher, have the ability to make it very very difficult for the faster car to get past them so my suggestion to to fix sprints is you have qualifying on friday okay i know you angus you don't like it but this just hear me out friday Hmm. qualifying whoever is in front for qualifying gets to go at the front for the grand prix then what you do is six times a year you basically give the chance for the back markers to get to the front Because being at the front gives you a massive advantage. Just being able to get through the pack gives you quite an advantage. And so you do reverse the grid or have some sort of reverse the grid. Maybe the top, the front 10 reverse. I don't know. A a reversing system. And therefore, what you do is you give, you know, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 points for the top 8. Or maybe 10 points for first and, 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 you know, down to 1 point for 10th. I, I think it should be a limited amount of points. And then you, you set them off for a short sprint. Literally 10 laps or, you know, let's say 15 minutes of racing. Okay, 15 minutes or so of racing. That means the back markers are fighting at the front for the race win, 10 points. And then, you know, we have a, a reverse grid in such a way that the faster cars as you go down the grid are defending the fastest cars at the back with people like Fernando Alonso having the opportunity to get those extra points. And people like Lewis Hamilton or, or you know, Max Verstappen having to fight through to try and get a point because this matters now because they can they might only be able to get two or three points. And then as a result, on the Saturday, you would have a, a much better melee 
of, of cars. You know, five cars fighting because the mid-pack and the back of the pack is much, much closer often in Formula 1 than the very front. And so throwing the front into the mid could be really, really interesting. And then you get something out of it. You get some change, which is the best possible result i think because you would end up giving the back markers and the midfields the chance to get some good points the front runners aren't losing that many points because it's only six times a year and realistically you know they could only get maximum of 10 points anyway or maybe eight points if you didn't want it to be quite that many and so you would interject a a new level of formula one something different the problem i had with the race in austria and I, oh, sorry, I'm not allowed to call it a race, am I? And the problem I have with the sprint in Austria is it felt like a preview for what we were going to get on Sunday. And I know that you, you, if you're a fan of sprints, you'll be sitting there going, well, actually, Tristan, uh, Max Verstappen wasn't very good on the Sunday and Ferrari <laughs> were brilliant. Well, that's very true. But that's not actually reflective of many of the other sprint races, is it now, Greg? Um, such as Silverstone last year, when we had Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton fighting for the fir- on the first lap in the sprint, and then what happened again? They were fighting on the on the first lap of the actual Grand Prix. So I so yes, we're going to have six sprints next year, and I'm not sure I trust De Macali to actually select the correct tracks, given that we're appar- we're apparently going to have a sprint this year at Monza. Which I don't know how I feel about that because Monza's not actually that brilliant for for overtaking. I don't know. They still haven't got rid of the sausage curve, so maybe that'll inject some interest into into Monza a bit more. But I think if we're going to go forward and we're going to have sprints, we've got to give the race or the or the sprint a unique element that differentiates itself from the overall spectacle on Sunday. It cannot just be a you know a little Grand Prix. Hmm. Yeah, I have to agree, and I I find it baffling in many ways that with these new these new regulations where cars can more easily follow one another, there's still the argument from the powers that be that it would be dangerous somehow to have the slower cars at the front of the grid and the quicker cars behind them. I just really washed with me, and also as well with your system, Tristan. I hadn't really thought of it before, but by having the switch around in some capacity, it's actually a great chance for research and development because if you then have the slowest cars at the front not having to dodge and weave around blue flags and to you know be so far away from or be so close to everyone trying to catch up should i say you get them running in clean air you get some more data there about how they perform let's say at power circuits hopefully where sprints are going to be held vice versa switch that round you've got red bull and ferrari and mercedes and the bigger teams that normally have less overtaking to do you see how they run in terms of how they run in dirty air and overtaking uh, many different uh, cars and and drivers out the track so there's a research element to that as well which would be quite useful but the, the core issue you say there of it being a mini grand prix i i mean i i completely understand where you're coming from but if i was playing devil's advocate and being a member of you know the powers that be i'd say ah oh, well it's kind of meant to be a mini grand prix because we that's the way we get new viewers in new people who are interested in formula and we go ah you really enjoyed the sprint, right? Well, he's a bigger version of it type thing. It's sort of a gateway into the sport. So I guess their argument would be that switching it around doesn't provide a gateway as such. But I personally, I think it's got some legs. If it ain't if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That is all. 
I'm not sure that's an argument, but I, no, I, I mean, I disagree fundamentally is. that F1, you know, has it has a has a problem with viewing Grand Prix and stuff because if you want to watch a short version of the Grand Prix, you can go onto YouTube and watch the eight minute highlights. In the UK, you can watch Channel 4's one hour total coverage of it, or in fact, Sky, I believe, have um, a, a shortened highlight version as well. So there is certainly options out there. And, you know, I love qualifying because, and I think qualifying is sometimes lost on on people, especially when they when they first get into the sport. Maybe you skip practice, you skip qualifying, you just watch the Grand Prix. But qualifying is, is a fantastic part and element of Formula One because it's effectively a time trial where the only person they're up against is you know, kind of themselves. Everyone tries to get free clean air and everyone just gets them you know, a race against a clock. And I feel like that's a real unique part of, of qualifying. And that's why it's so interesting, because to some extent, qualifying itself is a sprint race. It's it, if, if the whole idea of the sprint race is to t t determine who should be at the front by whoever is quickest overall, then I'd argue that's exactly what qualifying is. If you think about it, if you reduce it down to its basic element, it's whoever's fastest overall competing against everyone else on their raw time. Mm. And so the sprint race is basically just qualifying, except you have to do continuous laps. You know, that Max Verstappen punching in a, you know, a three tenths and second fastest lap in qualifying to take P1 is no difference than Max Verstappen taking a three tenths of a second fastest lap in during a little sprint qualifying over over ten laps to be three seconds ahead. You know, it all means the same thing. So this is my problem with sprint is they haven't got anything that differentiates itself, and that's why I think they should mix up the grid. You know, F one, if you're listening, you know our our emails there. You can contact us for further details on our amazing <laughs> plan to try and fit with with your you know version of Formula One in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did leave Austria or the sprint format a bit disappointed because I thought, well, Austria is a great circuit where there's lots of opportunities to overtake. This should be where the sprint really flies. But it, it, it didn't, in my mind, really. Like, you have this sort of classic fight at the start with, of all oh, who's going to get the lead? And then I suppose the Ferrari scrapping for P2 and 3 didn't really help it. So I suppose if you were anti sprint, not looking at anyone in particular, you'd look at this and go, well, it can't work, it can't work. But. I think it can, but I don't, as I say, I'm not convinced that Formula One is going to change it in such a fashion where it will work for the majority. And we go next to the French Grand Prix, Circuit Paul Ricard, if you will, the, the circuit with 167 combinations. Now, we're running out of time, but that is the next Grand Prix, so who do we think is going to do well there? Who needs to do well as well? Who needs to do well? Aston Martin. They featured heavily in this uh, podcast. Yeah. But I promise you they're not sponsored by... They probably don't want to be sponsored by us, actually, but at this point. Um, but I think Mercedes have said that the best is yet to come and that big upgrades are coming from the French Grand Prix. So I'm going to say that Mercedes is going to do very well at the French Grand Prix. They're not in my F1 fantasy team, so inevitably that is a prediction that's going to come true. I think that Ferrari have to do well here if they want to keep in contention with the 
um constructors championship leclerc specifically for the also the the drivers championship i think they need to get their head into the game and basically compromise science to get leclerc over the line and maximize their points and maximize the potential um listen to our previous podcast if you want to hear our thoughts on ferrari's game so far and i think Haas as well i think Haas have an opportunity to extend their lead for seventh get closer to the sixth and on a personal note as a big mclaren fan i would like mclaren to do well um and given that poor ricard is traditionally a track that's hard to overtake at because cars couldn't follow these new regulations means cars should be able to follow well we've seen that and therefore the 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 grand prix should be hopefully fingers crossed quite exciting so yeah i i I think it would be nice to see mclaren you know and ricardo doing very well but specifically as well ferrari um and mercedes are are gonna be up there i've indeed I've indeed also heard word on the grapevine, the grapevine being Formula1.com, that <laughs> Mercedes could do well at this circuit. They could do well. The mainly being linked to the fact that Paul Ricard a la Silverstone has very smooth uh, surface, has very smooth tarmac. So that lends itself better to um, a car which struggles when the, the going gets tough or it starts being bumpy. Uh, with their porpoising issues. So I look at the track itself, and it's not quite like Silverstone in terms of layout. I mean, there's some fast corners there, yes, for sure, but there's more sort of slower in nature. So I wouldn't say it would be as strong for Mercedes as Silverstone was, but I think we can definitely expect a upturn in, an upturn in performance from them. I'm expecting also, I think actually it's tradition before a, you go to a race to um, big up anyone who has a home race. And on this occasion, it's Alpine. And mess and Mr. Ocon as well, and also Pierre Gasly, all have their home race, so we could see some strong performances from them. Alpine on a good run of form at the moment, closing up that gap to be level with McLaren for fourth in the constructors. Um, and yeah, perhaps even I think that to be honest, we talk about all those battles. The main thing we'll be looking out for is where's the pendulum, the momentum going to swing next? Will it be in the favour of Red Bull? Will it be in the favour of Ferrari? Will Verstappen fight back? Uh, will Leclerc consolidate his advantage that he uh, gained back in Austria? That will be possibly the biggest talking point of the weekend. But for a track which I think you've been generous there, Tristan, I'm not convinced that it usually brings exciting racing or has the potential to, but hopefully it does so this weekend and it enables an exciting race for all of us. A team that needs to do well, a driver that needs to do well, that would be Pierre Gasly and Alpha Tauri. They are currently on an absolutely stinker of a run. The last time either of them scored points was in Baku, a commendable P5, but since then they've either retired or been as high as P14. So some big noise needs to be coming out of Alpha Tauri. They need to be turning up the volume there for sure. And I think really when it comes to Ferrari and Red Bull, I think we will see Red Bull strike back and potentially win this race. But I think if you're Ferrari, you need to at least get both your drivers on the podium in some capacity or another because if they don't do that or don't win the race then I think that they've got quite the mountain to climb really you know going to Hungary I think there's going to be a circuit that will favour Red Bull so it's time for them to go and make sure their momentum is less fragile built more on concrete than sand but yeah also wise on Alfa as I say because yeah, they were very close to being mentioned in this episode by yours truly but I thought no no hang on hang on Give them a chance in, uh, in France, but um, it's not looking great for them for sure. 
So it seems that's all we have time for in terms of episode 21 of F1M Review. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end of this one, be it on your preferred podcast provider or River Radio, be that live or via the Listen Back feature. A reminder, you can follow myself, Tristan, and the F1M Review account on Twitter. If you're looking for the F1M Review account, it's just like that, no hyphens, no nothing, all one word. And as we say, we turn next to round 12, the French Grand Prix qualifying is 3pm, that's British summertime on the Saturday and the race is one hour earlier that's one that's 2 p.m sorry uh british summertime as well on the sunday and on a sad personal note you will have a break from me i will not be here next episode i will be in sunny spain but you'll be left in very capable hands and hopefully with less white noise for you to dissect throughout the episode so i'll be seeing you in two weeks time and these pair will be looking after you come next week until next time thank you very much for listening